Welcome to another edition of Packy Chat. I believe this is episode number eight. Again, still dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. We're getting together via Zoom. Although I guess regardless if the pandemic was going on or not, we would get together via Zoom seeing we live at four different parts of the country. This week we're talking about bulls, bull management. For years they were treated so differently. And then, you know, in the last 15 or so years, we're starting to see people manage them a little differently and do some different things with them. So we got together just to talk about that this week. And we're getting crazy. This is week number two in a row. Inviting a guest on this week, we got Mara joining us, uh, having some experience uh, with uh, an all bull herd. So really looking forward to today's discussion. Everybody that has been following us, we appreciate it. Thank you so much. Uh, tell your friends, get us out. The more likes we get on Facebook, the happier we get. But uh, let's get to it. Let's uh, see what today's talk brings us. Thanks for listening. So we've had uh, we've had a handful of people send in some suggestions and things they wanted to hear, and one of them was was bull management. There was such a uh, a wide range of how people manage manage mail. So I just thought it'd be a good idea to to get together and and kind of talk about you know where we are with that, what the evolution of it was, and uh, and that kind of stuff. You know, I know I know when I first started working elephants, uh, males were almost always alone. You know, they came over to breed. The other type of socialization with the herd was pretty rare. Um, I know that for at least the last 25 years, if not longer, the Houston has been putting tie with everybody throughout, you know, different times, uh, even not to breed. But he was uh, always a pretty exceptional male. And now we're going this way of strictly bull herds and people putting males together more often. So I think it's a good thing to... It's a good thing, and it's a good thing to talk about. The previous place that I worked at, when we put our our bull in with our our cows, originally it was just for breeding, and it wasn't, it didn't go well. Um, we weren't really successful with it, and started socializing him more to a point where we could leave them twenty four hours together. Um, and within within a couple of months, he had covered the cows overnight. And they were and they were pregnant, so definitely worked in that situation for us too. Yeah, I'm the same way. When we started working elephants, um, it was just a, a female herd, so we had no males at the facility. Started working in, so the only exposure I got is going and visit at the facilities, and it was kind of the same thing every single time. Here's the cow yard. Here's the bull yard. This is where the bull stays. And there's a very clear indication that there's the bull section and the cow section. And um, they were never allowed to be together except for, you know, breeding attempts. And that was just standard practice. And it was the same, same situation in almost every facility I went to. I was going to ask you, was that bull, when he was in there 24 hours a day, was that just during the cycle? Or was that you guys had worked to that? even non-cycling times we had worked that even non-cycling only because we weren't running hormones regularly enough um to be able to monitor to be able to put them only in when when she was cycling so and we had three females that we were hoping that that he would breed with um so we got to a point where where he could be with them for long periods of time and then that changed after a few years and after the calves were born um but 
yeah, we weren't sending, we weren't sending bloods out for, for hormone analysis, analysis enough to be able to have a decent enough idea of when that was happening, I guess. When you said um, things didn't go well, well, was that because he roughed up on one of those females, right? Yes. Yeah. So he, um, he was pretty aggressive towards one female there, but she had already been, um, she had already had a calf from an artificial insemination a few years previously. Um, but the hope was to be able to, to run them all together. Uh, it turned out that we have to, they ended up in two kind of, separate herds there was the female herd and then the group that could go with the bull which excluded that one that one female um but when when we were trying to originally just put them together when we thought they were cycling we were very similar um we had a, a bull yard and a cow yard um and the bull yard was much smaller than the cow yard and we um we were unsuccessful at only putting him in with the females to try and get them pregnant. We, we couldn't, we couldn't figure that out. So we worked up to a point where we were able to keep them together 24 hours and they just did their thing. Um, and it worked, it worked really well having the two, the two groups, it was really fluid and, and worked nicely. And then when he started coming into must, things started changing after the calves were there, but at least for that, like three to four year period, it worked really well having him more integrated in the group full time. It's an interesting topic because one is, you know, how do we prioritize the, the importance of herd structure or sociability with, you know, the ones that work and the ones that are more iffy. And then how do we accomplish the breeding part with it too? So my question is after you were able to observe breeding, um, were you able to time it without particularly doing the, um, the hormone analysis, were you able to time it out so that you could change the the ratio of time that the animal spent together based on the, the length of cycle that you observed from breeding, actual breeding? A little bit. Um, we really focused on just their general compatibility, I guess, together. We really didn't monitor the cycles very closely, um, to be honest. And that wasn't really a huge, I guess, push once we were um, seeing that they were doing well together. It was mostly based on just duration of time that the cows would allow him to be around um and that decreased when the calves uh were around he would um his initiating play uh wasn't tolerated as much by the cows and so we went more based on just their general behavior and what we felt um looked like if things were just getting done if the cows were over having him around that sort of thing um versus really paying attention to their cycles if that makes sense. Now, when I got to my previous facility, uh, there was a time where we actually had, they actually had multiple, a couple of uh, bulls running with the, the herd of cows and it was monitored, you know, day by day, hour by hour, frankly, mm -hmm. they would look and say, okay, they've, you know, they've had enough. Usually it was the male who had enough, you know, the girls would make a big to do about him and crowd around him and not stop paying attention to him, which he had, didn't have a lot of, patients for and and uh, we were able to take the cues from them as soon as he started distancing distancing himself away from them and he would generally come back to the to the barn and say I'm done and you know and so with the girls and then he would he would over time um, create his own social distancing and to the point where if they were getting the hint great if they weren't then he started to get a little rough with them but one of the things that we found was um, 
over time, it appeared that we probably made some animals of a, of a younger age uh, overstay their welcome, which, which affected relationships later. We were able to overcome that quite a bit, with, but there were some animals that uh, there was some animosity. It's weird. I, I can't tell if it was something that, you know, they remember or, you know, it's ingrained in, the, in them now, but um, there seemed to be a contempt between the male and, and one animal in particular. And it was an animal that, that didn't cycle and, and didn't breed. We didn't expect to. So I don't know if that had anything to do with it. But for us, it was a, it was a process to monitor it as we went. The problem we had was <clears throat> that younger animal that sort of overstayed his welcome and was never successful in breeding, although we tried in the beginning. He was still relatively young. And uh, we found that had an impact not only on his ability to be with some of the animals in that group, like I said, it also had a huge impact on the ability of the uh, team, I guess, the facility, the philosophy about how to manage these animals moving forward. So it created a large amount of, um, I'll say fear, because basically for probably a decade, that animal didn't share space with any other cows. So it was a huge process to, um, to reverse that. And we were able to, uh, you know, as he got older, we, I think, you know, we can, there's a lot of hypothesis as to why it was better later, but uh, we actually utilized our, what we knew in tracking cycles to use the cycle to put them back together. And, you know, over time it was actually successful. And this is now an animal who is uh, well socialized with females for sure, and has had, has done natural breedings and sired uh, at least one calf through natural breeding. But this is also an animal now that spends time with young males. So over the period of time where we were afraid and hesitant to do these things because of the experiences that we had, it was actually a, it was a huge paradigm shift and there was a lot of work and we were really stepwise about it. Um, but we utilized a bunch of different tools to get him, I guess, if you will, re-socialized. Now that being said is it didn't mean, you know, the goal was not 24 hours a day to keep them together. The goal was to create opportunities for socialization. Much You realize that now where you are now. But um, our goal was to create opportunities for socialization for him and others as a bigger goal rather than just worrying about have we met this um, requirement or have we, are we meeting our philosophy of, you know, 24 hours a day or are we just meeting the opportunities that we are trying to present, of, you know, socialization, whether it's males, females, breeding and all those things. So it's a, it's a, it's a, a long journey that went on for this one particular animal, but it, it also teaches us what we can do for the next one and the next one and the next one. <clears throat> can you just talk a little bit about your program now that you work in and kind of how you guys built that and what steps you took, you know, things you learned, you know, it's kind of a bit of an overview of how you guys got to where you're at and the success that you've had. Um, sure. Yeah. Oh gosh. Where to start? Um, yeah. Right. I, I think that the intent of the design of the exhibit um, is being used in a completely different way right now, but the the hope of having a bunch of, of male elephants in, in one facility was kind of a vision that started back in probably 2008, even before that, 2006. Um, you know, the, the previous elephants that, that resided at my institution, they took up a lot of time, especially as they got older. Um, so there was quite a few years um, from 2011 until 2016 where the hope was always to socialize the males together um, but 
it wasn't really a priority. There were some pretty significant health issues with the, the older females that were still there um, that just took up so much time. Um, so I moved there, I guess, in 2015. And when um, the, the last female, the geriatric cow, passed away in 16, we kind of really went forward into having conversations of what having a socialized group of male elephants would really look like. Um, and so it was a lot of conversation, um, a lot of really good discussion with a, a whole bunch of stakeholders at, at the facility, right? You have the, the welfare group and the veterinarians, and um, we, all, we all talked a lot at length of how we would do it, um, which individuals, we took individual uh, histories into account and which ones we thought would be most successful which ones we thought were kind of a wild card and could go either way. Um, and like most things in this world, it feels like our plan, our plan was one thing and then hormones got involved. And one of our males that we had initially thought was going to be our first um, introduction came into must and immediately changed the behavior of the other two. The reason we didn't want to put the, the two youngest together first was mostly for us. We weren't super experienced doing this and we had the butterflies and the anxiety and, you know, the hope that everything would go well, but you never know. Um, we, we watched their behavior very closely. We felt confident that it was what is, was going to go well, but we thought the two youngest would be more high energy. Um, and we wanted more of a, a low key, super easy first introduction for all of us. Um, but when, uh, when the oldest came into must, it actually changed their behavior enough that they were very timid and kind of, in general, the barn gets very different when our dominant bull comes into must. And so we decided to kind of capitalize on that. Um, and so we went with the first introduction in, a, in one of our habitats that has no water, the only one that doesn't have a pool, um, and we have good access around it. But we started with, with simple howdies in the barn, and, and once we saw that their behavior was... Um, it wasn't that they were responding in a novel situation. So when we first started putting them in areas right next to each other, you could tell that it was new and exciting and we didn't necessarily want the new and exciting aspect of it when they were out in the yard together. We wanted it to be kind of a like, Oh, this guy again, routine, seeing the same elephant. Um, just this time was going to be, without a, a protective barrier between them. Um, and it went really well. It was really anticlimactic, which was perfect. Um, they were together for about 30 minutes. We kept things short and simple, which it took us a good, um, a good three to six months to really feel confident that they, they weren't going to um, do anything inappropriate. Like we didn't see anybody take cheap shots at one another. Um, and we were constantly supervising. I think to your point, it was like we are monitoring hour to hour. Um, the surveillance cameras were always pointed. So even if we didn't have the entire team directly stationed around the different habitats to intervene if necessary, um, we still have those cameras pointed on them all the time. And that's still to this day. We, we watch them constantly because it changes potentially hour to hour. And 
once our, our dominant bull came out of must, he was really easy. He was kind of our, our go-to in the beginning. So we knew it was going to be easy to throw him in the mix and it went really well. I think we were really lucky that we had three really good candidates for it too. Um, and then we were built technically uh, by the people who designed it to house nine animals in our building, which we've kind of vetoed and said that our maximum is like five or six. So um, with that, they, uh, they decided to bring in two more. So uh, we're now at five and we went through the same process with the, the two newest that joined us. And luckily they had lived together for so long that um, quarantine was less stressful for them since they weren't solo and they were able to integrate really well. Um, but we're still, I guess we're a year and a half in now of having five and it changes constantly. Every day is different. Um, right now for whatever whatever reason the the four youngest are now all in must at the same time um which was new uh, we knew the the two previously that lived with us um our 12 year old and our 16 year old we knew that they'd be in, in must in spring um and the two newest hadn't gone into must yet um until this year and in the spring they decided to uh, join the other two. So the, all four young males that we have right now are all in must currently, um, all in their different stages. So the first, first must for these two new guys is pretty sporadic and um, each day is different. Some days they're a little more unfocused or unsure of what's going on. And then some days you would have no idea that they were experiencing any hormonal change. Um, so currently I, we we love it because it's different all the time, but it is a lot of work. It's a lot of work when right now they have very different um, compatibilities when they're going through their hormonal um, ups and downs. And we've tried something new this year with keeping our 16-year-old um, integrated with the, the two youngest while he's in must. So he's currently... He's on week nine now, so he should be coming out here shortly. Um, but he's been he's been socialized this whole time with the two bulls that um, he really seems to have have no threat. Right, these two youngest don't don't pose a threat to him, so they've they've done well together. And none of them right now can really go with our oldest. So the dominant bull, they have become incredibly aggressive to uh, when they're in must. That's actually how we first. Um, realized that a couple of years ago, our, our, he was nine at the time, he came into his first must, um, was relentless to him versus, um, you know, just kind of push him around a little bit. But yeah, it's been, it's been interesting for sure. So they keep us on our toes. It's interesting. Um, one thing that struck a chord with me, you said it's a lot of work. In a previous podcast, we talked about elephant populations. And one thing that came up a few times was, what are we going to do with these extra bulls? Um, you, kind of, you guys kind of go into a little bit of uncharted waters when you guys started this. You know, not the first time any you know, two bulls ever spent time together. When you say it's a lot of work, is it worth it? You know, is this a, um, we think that these type of facilities will help. If you had to put together a little bit of a brochure to sell someone, 
hey, this is a great idea. I think you should open a new facility and have a bunch of bulls. What would that brochure look like? Is that something you would really recommend as a business model? And what are some of the, you know, is it worth the amount of work that you're obviously telling us? And it seems it is quite a bit of work. Yeah, I, I th personally, I think it's totally worth it. Um, I think bulls in general, their their personalities are are so unique in watching them um, through this sort of what I found um, to be a really important learning phase for them, a really important developmental phase, especially for the, the youngsters. Um, just the change that we've seen in, in this one bull who um, he actually came from overseas and he had grown up um, in his family herd, but then lived for about two years with another bull of a similar age. And he came in, no manners, um, no etiquette was our, our, our kind of our wild card. We weren't sure how he was going to do um, being integrated. And he spent a couple of years of, you know, learning, learning the, the ways of being an adult bull, which we've actually been able to see that now having spent three years with our two older bulls, when we brought these youngsters in, um, he's actively teaching them right now. And it's, really incredible to kind of see that transformation in him as he's maturing and um, experiencing his musts for the first time. And, you know, now he's on year four, but I think it is a really important part of the, of the process, especially for young males to get a lot of dedicated time with older dominant bulls. So I do think it's worth it. Um, and when I say it's a lot of work, I mean, elephants are a lot of work, I guess in general, but it's, it's, it's the paying attention to the very small nuance, nuances in their behavior that changes. I think that's important because um, with these guys, like I said, it, it seems like a, a light switch turns on um, and overnight we have a totally different animal when they start to go into must. And they have been very aggressive towards um, certain individuals. And it changes day to day. It changes over long periods of time. Um, and being able to track those trends and those patterns and communicate it effectively to every single person that's in there to make sure that just because yesterday all five of them could go together today is a very different situation and making sure that animals don't get hurt or put into a situation where they could be put at risk. Um, I think that's the biggest part, I guess, of when I say that it's a lot of work because it's constant observation and really trying to effectively communicate that to everybody. Um, but I do think it's a very valuable um, life stage for them. So I, I do hope that more facilities um, do it. And it took us a couple of years, but a huge part, I think, of, of why our community has really gotten behind this program is because of our external relations team. They've done a really great job promoting these relationships and really getting the investment from our community because I can't tell you how many times you sit there um, especially you know doing demonstrations and everyone asks when are you getting a female when are you gonna have babies um, and that's gone down a little bit since our our PR team has done such a fantastic t job of of promoting what we're doing and why we're doing it um, but that can get relentless at times too when you're constantly being asked for for baby elephants, but, um, you know, it really takes a lot of buy-in from the entire facility for sure. Not just those of you on the ground, I guess, doing the, the elephant work. It, it takes every single 
person at the zoo to to be behind it and really promote it to make it successful. The, the first thing I, I'd say is, you know, somebody talked about early on having a cow yard and a bull yard, regardless if they go together or not. I strongly suggest you still have bull yards because they need, you know, they need to get away. They need alone time, uh, whether it's a breeding group or a bull group or whatever it is. But even if it was a pile of cows, I would hope there's someplace else to put animals if they need to get away from each other. Um, so I think the, the bull yard thing is still um, an important, an important tool. I knew you'd answer it this way, but when you wrapped up and said, you know, is it worth it? Because it's a lot of work, of course. I mean, so is dealing with a herd of geriatrics. So is dealing with a, a, a breeding group. So is, so is dealing with two elephants that are maybe, you know, aren't breeding, aren't males, aren't whatever. I mean, it's all a lot of work. And, and of course it's all worth it because we need, we, we need all of these different facilities to make the population, um, uh, somewhat successful. And then before we get into the adolescent thing, must, must has come up a few times. And a question I have is what, so um, it used to be when they came into must, everything changed. We manage them differently. And I know for us, uh, if a male comes into must, we don't really change a whole lot. I mean, it might affect, it might affect who goes with who just because of how elephants are reacting to each other, but that's, that's pretty rare. Um, but training stays the same. The routine stays the same. Our expectations are pretty much the same. We might give be a little laxed on, on criteria if, uh, if we need to be. Uh, but again, that's a, that's something that the animal in us kind of, it's that relationship we have to help dictate what that looks like. But does anything change with any of any of you guys when your animals come into must because everybody, on this call has males. Yeah, so for us, we pretty much keep things the same too. Um, it really depends on the individual, but um, you know, our oldest, he has a daily treatment that still happens when he's in must, um, but for whatever reason, he refuses to be anywhere near our male keepers. Um, he becomes incredibly aggressive towards them. That's actually one of the first indicators that we know that he's coming into his must is um, he refuses to to work with them without being incredibly aggressive. So that's the one main switch for him is that only female keepers uh, work closely with him for those, um, whether it's a, a blood draw or his daily treatment, something like that. But other than that, nothing really changes for him. Um, and then the others, again, it still, it just depends on the individual. Um, this year, like I said, we are, are keeping, him socialized with the two youngest. We tried keeping him socialized with the other 12 year old who is also in must. Um, and that went well for a few weeks, but then we started to see things escalating and um, the intensity of their sparring was getting a little bit, um, a little bit too much, uh, too risky. So we kind of split the groups up. So they're both still socialized while they're in must, just not with one another right now. Um, but we don't change kind of our expectations of them, I guess, until uh, they prove that those things need to change. So we don't automatically say, oh, well, he's in must, this has to happen. Um, we just kind of go based on what that individual needs. It's, it's interesting. Well, for us, we don't change um, how we interact with our bull when it comes to our training. Certainly that may change at one time, but right now we don't find that the animal discriminates between different keepers. Um, or it's interesting you said that it seems the male keepers start having difficulty 
with um, working with them. And we know that, you know, generally there may, there's some differences between males and females, but there is a spectrum between how male male people are and how female female uh, humans are. If you had to speculate, what, why do you see that? Do you, do you, if you watch a training session um, with a female keeper and you watch that same training session with the male, is it immediate? Is there precursors? Um, and I know it's just speculation, but what are your feelings? Yeah, so the, the differences, in, and we only see it with this one individual, it's, it's shocking how um, he's kind of like uh, Jekyll and, and Hyde almost. He goes from, um, he's obsessed with male staff normally. So where it's taken me five years to, to build a relationship with this animal, if any male came into the barn, especially one that has facial hair, um, you would have the relationship that it's taken me five years to develop at this point. Um, he just, he'll start chirping and vocalizing when male staff come into the barn. It's, it's very interesting, but then it becomes, um, overnight he changes. He starts swinging out, charging cables, um, anytime male staff is around. And, you know, we've all speculated about, you know, whether it's levels of testosterone in our, in our male staff, like, we think it would be funny to try things. We joked we've we we bought um, fake beards to try and wear to see if he would um, be tricked into thinking that we were male keepers. Um, you know, we thought back to you know those experiments you did in in yeah. high school with pheromones. We've tried some really weird shit, to be totally honest. We we also talked about if you know we put a a shirt on one of our male keepers and made him go like run laps around the zoo and come back and have one of us wear it. If, 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 if he would know if the, if the elephant would find out, but, um, but it is like a, it's an overnight change. He becomes is so, so aggressive. Um, I've honestly never seen anything like it. It's, it's pretty interesting, but um, in order to keep risk down, I mean, the, the male staff don't, even go on that side of the barn sometimes if he's needing certain treatments we had um, a pretty significant medical issue with him um, in the fall this year and had to do some pretty invasive treatments while he was in must and um, you know he tolerated the female staff being around but the male staff if they even if he could even hear them talking he would leave his treatment I mean it was it's pretty a significant change in him, but we were able to kind of figure it out and work through it. And male keepers didn't go near him this year in order for us to give him his injections and all of his treatments that he needed. But um, I'm not sure what it is, but it's pretty interesting from like a standalone kind of case, a case of one sort of thing. <laughs> but. I, so my response is would be, we keep, try to keep it the same as well. So the consistency of the routine must uh, stay, stay consistent. So it's important because like, like Maura said, you may have a medical issue or something like that where you, you have to treat the animal. So must, no must. Um, if you have a, a nail issue that needs to be treated, then it needs to be treated. So I think that's why your, your expectations of the animals shouldn't really change they should, you should still be able to, to get them to go in the shoot for a treatment or, or do foot care or things like that. Um, and I think that's just a product of a good consistent program and a training program that, that 
people don't use excuses like, oh, this animal's in must, uh, we can't do footwork for the next two months. Well, you know, I think that where there's a will, there's a way. And I think must or no must, done in a safe manner, of course, um, shouldn't affect too much on how you manage the animals. Um, you know, it's harder for sure, right? <laughs> we all know that. Um, and, you know, I, you know, as far as the male-female thing, obviously they smell pretty well. So I don't know if the fake beard's going to work. But, <laughs> um, but you know, it, it happens for sure. You know, we've had animals that, that, you know, were good all the other times. And when they're in must, you know, they wouldn't go in the chute or something if were, if, for, for one of the males, but they'd rock walk right in for a female. You know, so I, I think there's some validity to that for sure. But again, for me, being consistent and things like that is trying to fight through that, right? So I know with me and a former animal that I used to take care of, that was the case when he was in must, um, he wouldn't want to go into the chute for me. Um, but we, me and him, we had to work that out, you know, in our relationship, right? So um, we would do that and, uh, you know, but, but he was also really good for me um, all the other times as well. So again, I think it's just a relationship building thing as well with those animals. Um, but I think there is validity to the male versus female thing for sure. Cause it, it's not an N of one cause I've seen it and other bulls as well. So, so I got, I got two questions. Um, one about the male keeper thing. We've talked in the past about doing cooperative feeding to get herds to get along and that we are a part of the herd. Does anyone do anything to try to overcome that? Or is it, um, not a priority because I get it. There's, there's other things that we need to do and, and getting these people, getting the elephant to work with everybody sometimes might not be a priority. Um, I don't have uh, an opinion on that because I don't, I don't really experience it all that much. Um, and the second question is, does anybody do anything to manage musts? You know, they don't eat a lot uh, oftentimes, but yet we still tend to want to give them the same amount of diet, which I've heard, uh, that extra energy just makes must prolong. Um, so do you do anything like that to try to, to try to maybe kick them out of must after a certain period of time? Um, I know that we've tried it with uh, a couple animals years ago. Um, uh, and then we didn't see much success with it. And the only thing we might do is just feed them to what they're eating. Like we don't want to rake up an extra bale of hay tomorrow. Um, so we just won't feed it, you know? But that's about the only thing different we do. I was just wondering if you guys do anything different uh, on either of those two fronts. I have a, a comment about the, the male versus female thing. So I've only had one significant example of that in my career where we had a female elephant who responded better to males than females. She was pretty aggressive towards females. So we had a, I mean, we had a strategy for relationship building with female keepers and we also had strategies that we did as far as expectations and um, you know maybe slightly different payment schedules or things like that in order to try to make a session better uh, more fruitful in the end because you know one of the things that we have to consider too is you know it, it's a I, you know I never really believed in it much until I saw this one particular animal and again I don't I don't know how many you know uh, animals we have that fall into this category or how much of our career has been dedicated to dealing with, you know, these particular cases that we just chatted about here. But, um, you know, it, it's interesting too, because having, having consistent expectations, I think is important because now, you know, you almost have to worry about a, uh, uh, 
a scheduling strategy. You know, if there's something that needs to get done and you have to, you can't, you know, certain people have a, a, a higher challenge or uh, it's more difficult or frankly just can't get certain things done. That's, that's a consideration that that'd be, you know, for someone who does scheduling and, you know, some of our teams are relatively tight and small. We don't want them to have to have to deal with that challenge about, you know, getting these things, accomplishing the things that we want to accomplish with these animals. So that's one thing. So I think, you know, going back to the previous points that were, were laid out here is that expectations don't really change must or no must. I mean, the, the specific idiosyncrasies between animals um, we'll have to deal with, I guess, on a case by case basis. But, you know, the goal, regardless of gender, my expectation is the team of things, everybody can do everything with every elephant. And, you know, and we know that that's not always a reality, but that's always the goal. So clearly part of that is, you know, the male-female thing or the, the preference thing is certainly part of it. As far as trying to move animals out of must, you know, we, we always heard that, um, you know, you can cut food or do whatever. And, you know, and I also know that male, excuse me, I also know that Asian and African must is a little bit different as far as how it manifests or doesn't manifest or how drastic it is. So uh, at our facility now, we have a male who... Uh, previous to him coming here, he used to go into must very regularly, what we were told. Uh, he's been here for two, a little over two years now, and he's yet to experience a must. We, we thought we saw one coming, and we've seen fluctuations in testosterone, but nothing that we would consider a must. Part of, you know, again, I don't know what this means, but part of the reason why um, we think he hasn't, or I think he hasn't gone into must since he's been with us, is that um, we've taken purposely taken over 2000 pounds of weight off of him since he's been here. So whether or not, you know, to the point earlier about the excess energy and what that does for promoting or prolonging must, you know, maybe he just didn't have the, the groceries on board that, you know, I guess to biologically feel like he needed to go into must. So, um, because he, you know, he came to us, he was near 15,000 pounds. Um, he didn't look too terrible, but we knew that that was, um, you know, a, a weight we didn't want to keep him at. So, like I said, over the course of this last two years, we've dropped a couple thousand pounds of weight on him. So clearly that may have an effect. Now he gets, you know, he gets as much hay as he wants and he gets a, uh, a pelleted diet and things like that. We just cut out some things and, um, you know, made it through our nutritionist, obviously made it, um, created a target weight. So we think that that has something to do with it. But as far as uh, actively trying to move an animal out of must, I haven't really. One of the interesting things, that happened at one point in my career was we had multiple bulls at a facility. We had three bulls, adult bulls. They didn't share space. And I guess you would call the dominant bull. He was the oldest. He was also the breeder. Um, he was moved out of the facility. And then the two other bulls came into must. One came in and out of must pretty quickly. He was, he was considerably younger. He was a teenager at the time or maybe just 20. Um, and then the other male went into must and stayed in it for a year and a half, which was interesting. So we thought that was a, what we think it was a, a social dynamic that changed that um, caused the must and prolonged the must. Now that said, that animal also didn't show much in the way of must when that male was there. So, you know, it's one of those things, who knows? I mean, and social dynamics may have a, a something to do with it. Um, but it, is it, does it matter whether the animals share space or they see each other, they're aware of each other, or maybe they never get to see each other. I don't know, but that's part of it. But we, we've never tried to actively move an animal out of must. Yeah, so it, it, you know, it's funny you say that. I'm sorry. Give me one second. No, no. Go ahead. Um, you know, we, we have done that with younger elephants. And the first time for us with even 
the adult elephants is someone was talking about how they they go after the other male the uh, human males and how you know they're coming into musk ours all get goofy like like seeing see you know scared of their own shadow kind of goofy all of them big ones little ones they all have this kind of goofy phase right before they come into musk uh, but for us when the younger ones start to come into musk we'll house them next to an adult um overnight i mean even though they're all together all the time um we'll we'll sometimes put them right next to them and to a certain age that'll kick them out and then they reach a point where it doesn't work anymore but we do that just because sometimes it helps dynamics to get how we shift and how we do everything and if you think about in the wild sometimes those young males will come in those adolescent males will come across a big one and he'll straighten them up pretty quick and they and they kind of knocks them out of it yeah, I was just going to say, I agree with back to trying to be proactive on it because if you have animals that are over-conditioned, I'm, I'm a firm believer that that's going to lead to a longer must. So if, if you can keep your bulls um, in good body condition and be proactive on that side of it, I think that will help your must in the long run. Um, with that being said, we have had some bulls that were in good body condition that had longer musts that we wanted to kind of, okay, enough's enough of this. And uh, we have cut back. Um, like, like you said, you know, you, it's not a whole lot. You're, they're going to kick, kick themselves, kick themselves off food, but, you know, taking out a quarter bale of a hay uh, or something like that. Some of the concentrates, to, you know, reducing that to try to get them to come out. Um, he, he did, whether, whether it was a coincidence or he was coming out anyways, and we only did it, once, but, um, but it did work too. You know, again, the variables, there were a lot of variables. So who knows if that's what it was, though. You know, for that relationship question, um, you know, good point, too, is that, in, yes, we want everybody to do everything with all, all our elephants. And that is a, um, could be a lot more work depending on the situation you have. And I think it will dictate any period of time during your program, it may become more of a priority than not. You know, if I had an elephant in my program that at certain times didn't want to work with males and 75% of my staff was males, that's obviously a high priority. You'd be kicking a bunch of OT to the uh, female keepers and it would affect ultimately the care of that animal. Um, it might affect your hiring practices, I guess, you know, HR might have a say about that, but, you know, you need to have a, any period of time you may have to uh, make a higher priority when it comes to altering the food i think too it depends on um, how it affects your program we all kind of said that we don't change a whole lot our expectations of the elephants we still expect to take good care of them so from a management standpoint if we can still keep the same level of care um, do we really have to make any alterations to kick them out of must Socially, if it affects how we manage our herd, um, you know, clearly we may have to do that. But I think just like the relationships, when it comes to altering your food or altering them, getting out of must period, I think it all depends on any period of time how it affects your program. Yeah, we, um, to answer those questions too, the, the situation with our, our dominant bull and the, the male staff, we have seen significant improvements in his relationship with females over the last year, really pairing our male staff with especially newer female keepers um, and has really kind of expedited that relationship building process. So we've really maximized the time that he isn't in must to try and build those relationships um, 
to try and kind of even out the playing field a little bit like that. But in, in must be, especially this previous year, like I said, we had some pretty significant medical things going on um, that we've, we really maximized the fact that he's good with females in must in order to get him the care he needed. And our hope is for it to kind of taper out a little bit over the next few years as we continue this process of getting him more work with female keepers and hopefully we'll see some changes when he's in must um, with our male staff but we're just excited I guess that we have nine months of the year where if we do have something pretty significant we are able to um, kind of use the relationships he has with them with the males uh, to his benefit. I mean, we, we ran into a couple of situations this past year that thankfully we had those two male keepers. Um, and that's kind of what really started us the thinking about making sure the females were able to have a relationship of similar strength um, going forward. Because who knows if at some point we have a staff of all females, uh, if we run into the same problem, we definitely want it to be able to be managed for, for the care of that animal for sure. So hopefully over the next few years, we'll see kind of an evening out of, of male and female staff with him. But as for the, the, the managing an, an elephant out of must, I guess, we, we've talked a lot about it um, and ended up doing it or attempting to do it last year. Um, one of our males was in must for uh, six months, and he also had a, a medical treatment that we were doing on one of his front feet and he was very very aggressive with us um, so we would be able to work on his foot for very short periods of time um, throughout the week but uh, we didn't feel like we were able to get as much work done on it as we would have really hoped in order to see improvement in his in his foot so we decided to attempt to alter his diet to kick him out of must quicker. And so we took him off of all concentrates. So at the time he was getting a daily medical treatment that we were providing him a lot of those, um, a lot of those high concentrated grain items, which he really likes. And in must is one of the only things he'll eat for training. Um, and so we think that we were kind of fueling it a little bit and took him off of all concentrates and, um, altered his hay just a little bit. And within a couple of weeks, he was coming out of it. So again, it could have been coincidence to your point, like he was already in must, or already in must for six months. So could he already have made that turn and was coming out of it? We don't know, but um, that's the only time that we've really tried to manage one of these guys out of, out of must. So I would just wanted to get into a little bit of the adolescent care. So, you know, there's places like Denver that, that, you know, and, and hopefully other places soon that will come on board with being all bull facilities. At what point for you guys that have had young bulls um, from calves and then growing into teenagers, did you guys see signs of and or said, hey, you know, this is the time where, you know, he can't be with that breeding group anymore. We need to, you know, we need to pull him from the females and um, possibly send him to a to another location, you know, what's that thought process and what does that look like? What are the behaviors that, that are, that you guys see when it comes to that um, type of decision-making, you know? Our experience is uh, it's cut and dry. Generally for us, when they get to be around four or five, the young males, and they have some tusks on them, they start using them on 
some of the females. They don't use it on their mom. Uh, they don't use it on one of our females that's pretty tough. But the old lady that, that they spend a lot of time with, they poke the crap out of her. They give her abscesses. They do all these things. And she never lays the smack down on them to, to, uh, to stop them. And so it comes to a point where we've got we've to move them over to the bull side because they're just getting too rough with, with some of our females. And then what we do is we move them next door and we go through a time where it's kind of weird. They're at this point where, oh my God, I don't want to go, I don't want to go live over by the boys. Uh, and then we let them back and they're happy to come back. And all the girls are like, no, <laughs> go back to the boy side, you know? Um, and, and you feel bad for them because we still mix them back and forth. But there's a period of maybe, I don't know what it is time-wise I'd have to look at notes, but it's not a long period, but they start spending time with the boys and then we'll slowly start to bring them back with the, with the, the herd again. Um, and they've, and they, they've gotten over that pick on the, pick on the old lady thing. And, and that's, that's our experience and that's what's worked for us. But it's generally four or five years old for us that they start to do that. You know, when they're on the boy side, they, they all defend themselves. They love it. They all, you know, you put them together, they, they push each other and they, they feed that with one another. The girls don't do that with them, the, the older girls. And so that's what dictates us moving them is just what they do. It's interesting. A couple of t um, times I was mentioned about um, these young ones going to the males and both in their rage countries, right? They get kind of straightened out. Do you think it's necessary for these adolescent animals to go to bull school? so to speak. Um, and if they do go to this bull school, is it worthwhile that, you know, if we have a facility where we have multiple males, you can kind of do it an in-home schooling, bull school. But if not, is it worth sending these animals to facilities that there are other mature males? And do we think that that might help set them up further to be more successful in integrating with other herds and other females? So, I don't think there's enough enough data to support it, but what I see now, absolutely, absolutely. I think I think um, I mean it's a tough thing to say that um, you know as someone if we had this conversation last last week about the population and how hard it is to move elephants out, but but I think young males that are brought up in a in a bull herd um, are are so much they're socialized so much differently. I think it's going to be impossible to say if, hey, just taking one out of a bull herd and put them in a breeding situation is helpful, or if they need to have that combination of things. You know, you don't want to pull one out and then you put them in with a bunch of females and they're used to just knocking each other around and they're doing that to some of the, the older ones or the breeders. Um, but I think, I think the socialization on these elephants, these young males that are raised with uh, either in a herd or with other males is so much different than than the older males that I have experience with that, that were raised by themselves. Yeah, we have seen um, huge improvements in the behavior of quite a few of the, the youngsters that came in after spending time with the big dominant bull, but there was a huge difference between, I guess, levels of appropriateness when, you know, we had, we had bulls move in a, a lot of different kind of ages or life stages, what have you, but the youngest one we had that, that moved to us was almost six and he had already spent a year with another young bull. And, um, so he left his herd pretty early and there is definitely a big difference between, um, 
him when he got here and the amount of stuff he needed to learn, I guess. I don't know if that's the right way to put it, but he definitely seemed to be um, needing a lot more coaching from the other elephants than the ones who just moved here, who spent longer with their family herd, but then also spent a lot of time with um, other bulls before moving here. Um, so it's probably, I guess, an individual basis, but it definitely seems from, from my perspective and what we've seen over the last few years here that it would be valuable if there was kind of a, a middle phase, right? Besides going straight from leaving family herd into a breeding situation, it would be kind of interesting to see if, you know, they go off to a, a bull boarding school sort of thing for a few years, if there's any, any differences in their behavior as adults from that. Yeah, that kind of goes back to the, the example I talked about earlier about the male that over, sort of overstayed his welcome. So we had first male that we moved out of the family group. You know, once he got to a certain age, he started to test boundaries and um, decide he wanted to, you know, engage with the older females and, you know, rough play and things, which was was fine for a while. Um, we decided that as soon as those females started to defer to him, you know, it's a little different. It was the African herd and, you know, African, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't as much the tusk thing because the, the females had tusks as well. So they were, they were well uh, able to sort of defend themselves, if you will. But as soon as we saw the females start to um, be impressed by him or, uh, you know, stop trying to engage him or, you know, head on and started to turn around and take off. The first day we saw them turn around and, and run from him, we knew that that was, you know, the beginning of the end. So we downshifted very drastically the amount of time that he spent with them. We didn't shut it off cold turkey, but we did um, less amount of time. And we also did uh, more supervised time. So that was a, a, a big change that we made. But I think one of the big things is for these males, especially is the, the socialization with other males and things in that transition, I think is important, but having them born into a group with other young animals and other babies, I think is probably, I don't know, I'll say equally, if not more important um, also. So unfortunately we don't always have those opportunities, but I think that's where some of these, um, a lot, of, a lot of progress has been made in, in creating these transitional groups and what they look like and also expanding the social experience of those animals, which I think regardless of, of what, you know, how you do it and if you're having success with it, I think that's important for everybody because we've said this on other chats is that, you know, the odds are you're going to get somebody else's animal at some point, you know, an animal you don't expect to have at your facility or an animal that, you know, may not even be born yet, frankly. So the best we can do to prepare them for everything and anything, whether it be training, methodology or philosophy, whether it be socialization, whether it be male and female keepers, whatever it is, I think that's the best thing that we can do um, so that when we move these animals around, because we will at some point, um, we're not just, we're, we're setting everybody up for success as much as we can, not only just the elephant in particular, but also the staff that's going to inherit that animal um, so that they have, they have more things and more tools to work with for their herd and then um, to keep that animal moving in the right direction. We discussed a little bit about um, the way it used to be in that bulls used to be, you know, by themselves. And we've clearly changed some of our management strategies. 
Um, my question is, why do you think we've changed our management strategies and why weren't we doing this for a while? Because their natural history hasn't changed. You know, is it because, you know, us as humans had certain needs? You know, um, we had management styles that have changed. Management styles were sharing space with the animal and the more time that more time that uh, bulls potentially spend time with the females, maybe less time that humans could spend sharing space. Is there also a fact that maybe we weren't meeting some of the elephant's needs before? It was mentioned the hormonal part of it. Um, that is still, you know, kind of recent history that has become a management tool. When that tool wasn't available to us, were we making incorrect um, choices by putting these males with the females in appropriate times and they were causing problems with the females. And then and the third thing is maybe we just got better and we've actually researched and learned more about their natural history. So those are three things I think that could have contributed to us evolving. What do you guys think about that? I think part of it is that uh, <clears throat> there's been a paradigm shift, I think, in um, the opinion of how social, how social males are, for one. And the ability, you know, like I said earlier in this conversation, you know, oh, nope, that's a male. He's kind of by himself. And then we bring him over for breeding. And if he gets along with the cows, great. He can go with the cows. But, you know, um, it's there was a, a tradition almost, I think, that this is how you did it. Um, and certainly the example I talked about earlier about the facility where I was, it became a tradition and, it, you know, an animal was sort of, lack of a better term, labeled as um, – could be problematic and that had a huge effect on a, per, a portion of time in his life where he wasn't able to be socialized to the greatest extent possible which is unfortunate however the good news is is that there were discussions and plans and the goals uh were, were recognized and the plans were made to accomplish them so that was the that's the win there and then also moving forward it, it helped uh do even more than the original goal and now that's the new philosophy is that they're absolutely doing those things now, which is, which is the good news. But I think as an industry, we had, um, and part of it came from, from things we saw in natural history and, uh, you know, wild elephants is that we didn't give them enough credit for being social. And I think that helped us. So whether or not there were situations where you were either forced into it by your facility or the population of animals that you had, or um, there were some open minds or, Free, you know, some free thinking and some different thinking. I think that's done a lot of it. Also, I think that a lot's been done for the institutions that have opened up and taken the risk on the industry's behalf. You know, the, the Birmingham's and the Denver's, you know, they're the ones that have, I guess, I want to say made it okay, but certainly planted the seed for other people to say that this is a model that can work if you're careful and you put the work in and you're, you know, you have a good plan. I think that's also done a lot for this industry. And, and as we talked about, we need more of that. You know, we get back, we always, we always get back to the sustainability piece. And if we're going to keep moving forward with what we want to do goal wise in that department, we've got to find a place where these young males can, um, you know, I guess, for, you know, these fraternities, I guess you could say to put these males in for a while um, in the in-between time that keeps them social. You know, I was always afraid that if you put these, you know, this, this sort of perpetual fraternity house that may actually have a negative effect. You know, that was one of the things that I was like, Oh, is it, could this happen? You know? And I don't, to this point, we don't have a lot of animals that have come out of those situations, but that's actually not the case that we've seen up to this point. Is it coming out of these situations, at least on the African side, um, we've seen pretty well adjusted animals that, that, 
do a great job um, being social and I'm not sure about the breeding part yet, but we'll figure it out. But I think that's, that's been a, a testament um, to these institutions that have helped us, the, you know, the collective, we move this ball forward. A few things on that. I think, I think it is still, we need to see what happens when these males come out of this, you know, and, and how they breed, uh, how they, what they, what happens to them as they become breeders. I mean, I know uh, at Houston and they're looking at uh, Tucker to be that next, that next one to breed there when, when Ty stops breeding or dies or does whatever. So it'll be interesting to see if he, if he can fill those, fill those shoes as a breeder and, and what his socialization has been like with the boys uh, and then go back with a group of, uh, of females. I don't know what has changed, but I, I can say that I think we originally managed them this way because we thought they, they were loners. That's what we knew. We knew that they were solitary. So we thought that that's how we'd manage them. And then I think, I think somebody already said, you know, we're talking about, Back back in the day when everything was free contact, I think you had to kind of manage some of these males a little bit differently back then um, for staffing, for housing, for all kinds of stuff. Uh, you know, protected contact wasn't really a thing. So uh, you had to do things a little bit differently with them if you wanted to manage the rest of the herd. So I think that's why we were there. How we got to where we are today, I'm not really sure of what changed, but uh, I'm glad it did because things seem to be working out. Yeah, I was just going to say too, and, and just again, speculation, but I think we see in the human world too, there's a lot of rules or, or policies that are put in place to manage the few and not the, the bigger whole that maybe at some point there were a couple of incidences or, or something happened with a couple of, of animals that then created this managed the whole in order to accommodate these couple of exception um, pieces. And we talk about it a bunch just with our policies at our facility that, you know, we don't need to micromanage everybody just because there's probably going to be a couple of people that won't abide by that policy, but it doesn't make sense to, you know, make everybody do it just because those couple of individuals are going to, are going to struggle with it. Um, and so I wouldn't be surprised if that's the same, you know, historically with a lot of the ways we've managed animals is, you know, there were a couple outliers that maybe behaved differently or more unpredictable so that it just became better to manage the whole in, in a certain way. And I, I mean, I think it's just a great credit to our industry and, and what we've done to continue to push the envelope and move forward. You know, you get a lot of people that are criticize us that say, Hey, we're not doing the right things by elephants. But I think, um, but I think as a whole, man, we're doing a great job saying, Hey, what can we do better for these animals? And, and bull management is part of it, you know, learning, uh, you know, coming with new techniques and, and figuring out different ways to house them together and, and doing, uh, you know, the fission fusion, like what we talked about last week and different things like that. Um, so it's a great credit to these facilities that, that were the pioneers for it. Um, and pushing the envelope. So uh, big kudos to you guys. I think it's great. Thank you. I'd love to just real quick question to all of you guys. I'm completely obsessed with the constant questions we get about the, the males and, and from ourselves internally, we are constantly asking questions like, why is he behaving this way? Or why did this change? And it's, it's constantly evolving and, and getting really interesting. But one of the, the things we've been completely obsessing over right now is um, tracking the trends in quality and quantity of, of our semen collections 
um, in and around must. And obviously not having any females around completely takes out that kind of factor. Um, we don't have any female hormones around, but have you guys seen any significant changes um, in the bulls that you collect on, uh, whether it's quantity or quality of, of the, the sample based on must? So the only info I have on that was we always found it more challenging to get a good sample during must for probably for a couple of reasons. One is that, you know, there's the, um, you know, there's different philosophies about what the surgeon testosterone means for a sample or not. The hardest part for us was we always found urine contamination was very challenging um, to, to really ascertain whether a sample was good or not. We didn't really have, I don't, I wouldn't, I can't recall very well if we had issue, more issues trying to get a good sample of what quantity was. Um, we always found that quality was tough and it was, we, we thought it was mostly due to um, urine contamination, you know, when especially when there's heavy periods of dribbling or gushing, we, you know, everybody says urine dribbling, but we had many, we had many days where it was, you know, you move a door and it's, it's not a, that's not a dribble, that's a gush, right? So it, it so it's challenging to try to get, you know, a, a, a sample that requires it not be urine contaminated when it's just, you know, the, you can't shut the spigot off. So that's what we found. But I've also heard other folks talk about, folks way smarter than me, talk about um, the relationship of testosterone, the amount of testosterone, um, you know, in an animal and what that means for um, good samples or bad samples. I, so I'll say real quick, um, as far as that goes, I, I know, um, you know, there was, in, there was a place that we uh, were, would, would collect urine for that didn't have any cycling females, but they had a male they would collect. So they would ask us for uh, urine samples during must. And, and then when they did have a couple of cycling females, they did notice that their semen quality was better when those cycling females were around. So we would collect urine for them and, and send it up there and they could pour it out. And they did notice a better, better samples because of that. We actually did that for uh, Jacksonville used to collect for us a lot. They were big on getting uh, cycling cyclic urine from us to present to the, to uh, the male before, because I don't, I don't recall if they had any or that at least they wanted to time the collections around cycling. And we had, um, we always had, I guess, not major must events around cycling, but we always saw what we call just a blip. So we would see them sort of go into a mini must and the behavior would change and maybe a little bit of drainage and maybe a little bit of um, urine dribbling for a short period of time, but then they'd come out quick the longer bouts of must that we saw were typically not, we didn't think were related to any um, cycling cows. Um, like I said, the biggest one that we had was when we changed the population of males, that had a huge effect. That was a heavy must for, I mean, heavy must for, for this particular animal um, for over a year. So it's, it's definitely something to consider. Um, and I can't tell you, the folks at Jacksonville could tell you better as to whether or not they thought it was helpful, but we continued to do it as long as they asked for it because it was something, you know, we thought there was something good about it anyway. And of course it wasn't, it was just down the road. Yeah. It's been, um, it's been interesting to kind of watch their, how they impact one another. Um, again, since we don't have the females, but when our dominant bull is in must, we see lower quality from our younger elephants um, we have one who we can re regularly and reliably collect on. And, um, even in must his, his samples have gotten really, really 
his quality has gotten a lot better when he is in must, especially because we were able to f kind of figure out how to um, collect on him during that time. But it's been interesting how it's all changing. But um, we haven't seen a lot of progress with the two um, youngest that moved here. We are getting some small samples, but not great quality. Uh, and we were just are kind of watching it just to see how it changes now that they're here with all males. They were collected on pretty regularly and got good samples where they lived previously. Um, but things have shifted now since they moved here. So it's just kind of something that's been interesting to watch and has become something that I'm very interested in, in seeing how it changes over time with these guys. So, well, I, th I think you make a good point as far as the suppression and stuff like that, because I don't know if there's a whole lot of data out there as far as, you know, do, can an older elephant suppress the younger elephant semen quality wise and things like that. So obviously we kind of think the same, same thing where we're at, you know, cause we have some that have good samples and some that don't. And um, so that's an unknown. Yeah. That, that, that would be cool if we kind of knew, you know, but if you, if you have, you know, five, you know, your younger ones, their semen quality may not be that good be, because they're not, they're not the head honcho, you know? I think they go through through like stages, um, you know, when they're young and they and you can start collecting them, but they're but they're too young. I think you can get samples out of them. Then I think they become those teenagers and they start to know better about what an adult male is. And I think that kind of that changes. Um, I know that from what I remember, Charlie had some of that. You know, that's where I'm, that's, I'm basing this off of stuff I've I've heard in conversation with Charlie where. You know, you get good samples when they're young, when they're young, like, uh, you know, under 10 ish. And then they get in those teen years and the samples start to get crappy. Um, and then it doesn't change until they get older or more dominant. I mean, I think Rex is one of those, one of the prime uh, examples of that. And yet Kelvin is on the other side of that. He was breeding when he was younger and collecting semen from him when he was younger. Um, but some of those other males they weren't getting from. So that's, that's all I have heard. And like you said, there's not enough animals out there to have that enough data to, to make even a, a real good assumption. Thank you for once again, listening to this edition of Packy Chat. Appreciate you taking the time to listen to us. Again, Packy Chat's all about just conversation. Take things you heard, uh, things that might work for you and use them. That's great. Things you don't agree with. Well, that's okay too. We're not here to tell you there's one way to do it. We're just here to start conversation and have some thought. Once again, thanks a lot for listening to Packy Chat. We appreciate you listening.